I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, a look at music's effect on our everyday lives. I am thrilled to have with me today Dr. Nolan Gasser, author of the 2019 book, Why You Like It, The Science and Culture of Musical Taste. When it comes to music, this guy pretty much does it all. Dr. Gasser was the chief architect of Pandora's Music Genome Project. He's a professional performer and composer in multiple genres, including jazz, opera, musicals, film scores. His classical and orchestral compositions have been performed in venues, including Carnegie Hall, the Lincoln Center, and the Rose Bowl. He's a musicologist and was the subject of the documentary Musicology. I am so thrilled to have him joining us today. Welcome to Enhanced Life with Music, Dr. Gasser. Thanks, Mindy. It's great to be here. I am so intrigued by your role in designing the Music Genome Project. Before we jump into our main topic today, could you give listeners just a brief explanation of what that project was and how you came to be involved in it? Absolutely. So this goes back about 20 years. Uh, my career as a whole has taken various sort of you know, unexpected turns, as I think often happens in music and, and, and the arts in general. Um, so I um, ended up getting a PhD in Renaissance musicology. That's its own story, how I got into that. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> as a, starting off as a jazz pianist. And so I was basically toward the end of my of, of my doctoral studies, about ready to take my quals, and uh, this was late 1999. And I really thought that I was heading largely for an academic career from that from that point. But I got an email from a guy named Tim Westergren, who was also a Stanford grad, kind of an amateur musician. Uh, he was playing in various rock bands, and he and two other guys had just founded a company called Savage Beast Technologies, <laughs> sort of typical for that age. Um, <laughs> and the idea was uh, of, the, of these three guys was to sort of marry music analysis with kind of database algorithms in order to, to, to provide better music recommendations than what you could get, say, at, at, you know, from Amazon, which is a technique called collaborative filtering. So people who bought you know, A also liked B. You okay. like A, so we're going to recommend B to you. Okay. And it, it's, it sometimes can work, but it's not based on actually what's going on in the song in that case, mm. right? And, and when we, of course, we, we know nothing about the user uh, or, or the actual customer. So that was the idea of being you know, smarter about recommendations, but also there was kind of a more component to help you know everyday musicians find their audiences mm. and vice versa and not just to leave that dynamic to the big record labels yeah. and, the, and, the, and the radio program people yeah. who would say here's what you should listen to and uh-huh. and, and so um, none of those three guys were trained in music analysis and so they needed people who really could do that to kind of form the basis of what they had tagged the music genome project and when I first met them it was a very basic uh, you know maybe Maybe there were 40 or so different components, very generic. And so they recognized, uh, Tim recognized my sort of abilities, my, my sort of eclectic background, and obviously my skills as a, you know, as a musicologist to sort of lead this operation. So I led the whole music operation from the very beginning. I'm not one of the founders, sadly, but I was like employee number three or something. Oh, wow. And how <laughs> did Tim connect with you? Did you know each other from your Stanford days? 
Well, we didn't know each other, no. Uh, he had graduated uh, as an undergrad uh, a few years earlier. And, uh, of course, I was coming in as a, as a, as a doctoral student. So okay. our paths didn't cross there. But he had heard about me and also just knew, obviously, that Stanford would be a good place to find somebody to, uh-huh. to help fill this role. And we had a great talk at the coffee house at the Stanford uh, campus and really talked about not just the practical dimensions of what, the, what this could look like, but really, again, these sort of moral and ethical mm-hmm. ones. Uh-huh. And so I was just about ready to leave for a, a five-week trip to um, Milan to do some, you know, by the end of my research for my own thesis. And um, uh, so I took my computer with me. And during the day, I'd be at the, you know, at the Biblioteca Sportsesca doing, looking through the archives <laughs> for my dissertation. And then after enjoying dinner with my wife and our, and our young daughter at the time, would, you know, spend hours thinking about what could this music genome project look like. Mm. And that was the start. And then I ended up designing all of the genomes that run Pandora. There are six of them. I wrote the manual, you know, helped figure out how to hire the actual musicians that are going to code all those songs, Uh and then worked with the engineers to design uh, what that algorithm would look like. Uh. And basically, very quickly, what, what is a genome? I took that metaphor of the Human Genome Project very seriously. I said, how can we break music or think of music almost like a biological species mm-hmm. or different genres uh-huh. as like species. So you have the rock species and the jazz species, the classical species. And the goal would be to you know, sort of discern what are all those individual factors, all those genes that could potentially be at play uh, when analyzing anything that would fall within that species. So for example, with the rocks species, this genome, the rock genome, would need to be able to successfully code everything from the dawn of rock, let's say with Bill Haley and the Comets, you know, to contemporary rock with Muse or a John Legend or, um, you know, Led Zeppelin or, you know, or the Sex Pistols from the most sophisticated to the, the, to the simplest and all sorts of uh, variants of style. Sure. That is, it's so fascinating. How long did that entire project take? It started, what, around 2000? Yeah, so basically the development of the various genomes went from around uh, you know early 2000 to around 2006 actually. The last genome to be developed was the classical genome, which was uh, a bit painful for me. I sort of wanted to start with the classical being a classical musician, mm. but of course there's no money in classical music. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> we had to start where the money is uh, with the pop and rock. And then we got into jazz next because we had a client and then we discerned we needed to separate out, you know, other forms of pop music from, you know, we needed to sort of make a special genome for hip hop. Yeah. It was so rhythmically distinct and then electronica mm. and then world music and then finally classical. Sure. Wow. Fascinating. Well, I'm sure I could talk to you all day about that, but I'll go ahead and bring us back around to our topic of today, and that is how our musical tastes are developed. Talk to us about what some of those most important factors are that influence our individual musical tastes. Right. Well, that's really what I set out to answer uh, in in the book. It was a sort of a three-year research project, um, and I kind of delved into aspects of it in the ensuing years with various lectures that I gave and different studies that I had done. 
there's no doubt that a big part of it is what the genome aims to get at. What's going on under the hood of the music? What's what is the the actual identity and experience of the melody of the harm of the harmonic uh, aspects of the rhythmic aspects of of sound and form instrumentation so certainly a part of our taste is really those raw materials of what's going on irregardless of who recorded it what label it's on how much money it made what labels people give to it and so that's that's an important factor, but and that's really what Pandora is is getting at. Let's let's strip away all of that sort of extrinsic um, uh, sort of metadata as much as we can mm-hmm. uh, to discern where our tastes lie. And you're but talking about things like rhythm, harmony, lyrics. Lyrics, what are some other absolutely. examples of those? The shape of the melody. Absolutely. I used uh, initially kind of a sort of mnemonic device known as Schmurf which was sound, harmony, melody, rhythm, and form, mm. um, uh, which I had used in teaching undergrad, non-music majors uh, to understand music. And then we added text to that, since obviously you, you need to understand lyrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it made it schmurfed. But um, when it comes to actually what we love, there's no doubt, and what we don't like, it, the, that it, it extends beyond just those musicological elements. And that's what the book explores. There's aspect of our, our cultural background, our sort of subcultural, what I call intracultural, the various groups and cliques that we reside in, and our own psychology. And in a very complex sort of alchemy, these things all forge together to make our, any individual's musical taste somewhat distinct from any other's. Um, and <clears throat> really has a lot to do with how our brain processes music, how memory operates. So it's a pretty, you know, again, it's a very rich and, and uh, sophisticated question. Mm-hmm. How early do we start developing musical tastes? Well, again, if we think about it from that cultural background and, and the way that our brains act as supercomputers to process the rules of how music should or should not proceed, it really begins, especially in that first year of, of life and even in the womb. But in that, during that first year, our brains begin to process the, the sort of syntactical and semantic uh, rules of how music should operate, the kind of scales that make sense. Uh, the kinds of even harmonic progressions that are typical. So when when we hear what is called sort of a deceptive cadence, mm-hmm. um, we may not have the the terminology, but our ears, by the time that we're you know six or seven, certainly we can recognize when a cadence, when a harmonic cadence doesn't follow the expected progression. Mm-hmm. Composers use that you know for dramatic purposes, mm-hmm. but that comes out of the fact that our brains process this all of this information from the first the first year or two of life. Uh-huh. Well, and I imagine right from the start too, infants and, and young children can recognize things like dissonance and consonance. Right. Now those are very subjective elements, but uh, there are, and this is also gets into the realm of, of physics. Our, we have evolved in many ways uh, to perceive things that come out of the natural physical order of sound, the, the sort of um, overtone series, for example, which actually you know, dictates the, the prime consonances of the octave, the fifth, the fourth, mm-hmm. and even the third and the sixth. 
mm-hmm. as being you know more sonorous, having actually simpler, especially as they've been manipulated uh, through tuning and temperament over the centuries. Those intervals that I just mentioned have simpler you know ratios in terms of the uh, of the of the o- the actual frequencies. Mm-hmm. Compared to the half step and the major seventh, which we do hear as dissonance. And it's it's partly because of the culture that we grow up in. But a lot of it just has to do with the physics of sound. Sure. So obviously there's a lot that we pick up as infants just based on our culture and what we become accustomed to hearing and comfortable hearing and associate probably with comfort and being cared for as an infant. What about the high school years, the middle school years? I think all of us have this image of middle school and high schoolers wanting to create their own identity and make sure that it's different from their parents. There's all the hormones that are taking place, which allow us to experience things so much more intensely, which makes them just imprint more on our memories. Talk to us about what's going on with developing musical taste during that time period. Absolutely. So if you can just, you know, picture a child growing up, those first years, first, you know, two years or so, our brains are are sort of formulating, you know, what those sort of normal rules of musical discourse, melodically, harmonically, rhythmically, what kind of meters make sense. As we grow up and we hear the music of our parents, and, you know, if we go to church or synagogue or, and we go to the grocery store and we go to friends' houses, we watch television, mm-hmm. all of those musical styles and, and, and approaches become part of our, you know, our sort of repertoire of what is, you know, what is standard, what is normal. And, you know, so kids often, you know, will like the music that, that is played at the house by their parents when they're, you know, up to 10, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. But certainly by the time that they start to get into puberty, as you say, as the hormones change, we as individual, we as people start to form a little bit more of an individual uh, sort of identity. We want to separate ourselves somewhat more from our parents. And of course, we start hanging out with friends and forming, you know, philosophies of life and who we are and who we want to be. Mm-hmm. And so music becomes this badge of identity. The kinds of songs, the kinds of approaches, often in contrast to what our parents might find, you know, is, is good and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, if this becomes our music and especially through our teens we formulate our our ideas about the world and our ideas about love and and friendship and politics and whatever it may be while we're listening to music and so they become in sort of intermeshed mm-hmm. and the different this so why I mentioned that expression intraculture so the different groups you know if we play sports or if we you know if we play music or if we're in whatever thing that we're into as kids you know we kind of form our own separate little clique of uh-huh. uh, what music what what music are we listening to? It may not be a musical click, but almost every click, especially in those years, has kind of a musical component and so we 're more apt to say hey i 'd like to go listen to this because it 's sort of sanctioned by our group as opposed to something that lies outside of it. So sure. music again is that key to our identity in those early years sure well, and then you 're tapping into that social bonding aspect of music too that 's really created and at work there. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons why music is so powerful, going back to early in our identity. Music, again, has been around as long as we have. We've been finding ways to be creative about using music to to uh, you know to tell stories and to sort of define ourselves. And the music that we listen to as a community 
helps, as you say, with social bonding. When you sing a song with somebody, you feel more connected. When you clap hands to the beat with other people, whether it's you know you and a group of friends or you in a in a in a football stadium, you feel emotionally more connected. So mm-hmm. it's one of the great powers of music. So in a small group, music you sing along to, you're not only connecting to the music, but you're bonding with that group of people that consider this a great song. Yeah. Well, and that explains too why later on in life you can look back at those songs and objectively evaluate them as not necessarily being great music maybe, but you still love it, (laughs) even though you recognize that it's not really great, maybe musically speaking. It's so enmeshed with those emotions and that sense of community. Yeah, and it really it goes so deep. You're absolutely right. We can we can look back. I certainly look back at some of the music that I thought was the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> uh, and today that changes. Although a lot of things you hear you hear with the songs that you loved when you were 12 or 13 and and you almost get you 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 don't focus on the, you know, the levels of, you know, artfulness. You you are tied in. And that gets into the the power of musical memory. Uh, you know, music is the way our memory works. It creates these these traits, these traces, which lock in all of our that sort of uh, sensory stimuli with other things that are going on, and especially with emotion. And so, we often have very vivid memories of when we heard this song, or it conjures up uh, a certain you know a person, you know, your your parents or your grandmother or certain friends. Mm-hmm. And it's also why we hear all these amazing amazing stories from from Oliver Sacks and and others that folks in in older in life who've kind of, you know, suffering from Alzheimer's or other other, um, ailments can't remember much, but you start playing a song that they loved when they were 15. Yeah. Uh, They can sing every single single lyric and the melody, and it often does reopen up some of those synapses that have been otherwise closed. Yes. they can communicate better. They have other other memories that are working better. So yes, yes. there is the power of music. Definitely. Well, all of these different ways that we were talking about musical taste being developed are really affected by technology. I mean, I think about when I was a teenager and you had to go out and buy an album, a CD, and you were fairly limited in your exposure to music based on what CDs you owned, what CDs your friends owned and were playing, what was maybe playing on your favorite radio station. Whereas now, there are no limitations. I mean, we can listen to anything at any point in time. And partly due to the magic of the genome, the music genome <laughs> project, we can, we're constantly exposed to new music too. So talk to us about how you see the changes in technology affecting the development of musical tastes. Well, you're absolutely right. Technology and the computer and the internet have just blown open the way that we experience music from every period prior. You know, there's a, a one of my favorite quotes is from the, the 1440s. There was a theorist named Johannes Heineken, uh, who, um, I'm sorry, it was Ting Torres, uh, who said that nothing written more than 40 years ago is worth listening to. Hmm. Uh, and he was talking about the music of the generation that he was part of, composers like Guillaume Dufailly, who was an early Renaissance composer. And it's basically saying nothing written, you know, in the in the generation or two before was any good. But what's interesting is if you go forward from the 1440s all the way really through 
at least through the early 19th century, that was sort of true. People really didn't listen to anything that was written more than 40 years earlier. And certainly they didn't listen to much that was outside of their own little cultural milieu. And started in the 19th century, we started having a little bit more of an open mind. We, we would go back to the music of Bach and Vivaldi and say, oh, actually, you know, that, that, that is pretty interesting. And through the 20th century, as classical music got so sophisticated, we started going, you know, back to, you know, listening you know, to Beethoven and Mozart. Mm-hmm. And so obviously now we have the ability to not only go back in time to listen to music from any time period, uh, just by clicking on a button, but we also have the ability of going well beyond our own little you know corner of the world. Uh, we can listen to music from other cultures within our you know our sort of nationality, but also other cultures in other parts of the world one one kind of I would consider it a little bit of a of a fallacy that people think that once they 're out of their twenties, our ability to sort of discover new music that we love is sort of gone right. And really, I don't think that's true. I think that when we get in our 20s, it's true we have less time to spend exploring music, or at least we used to. Um, We didn't have time to spend all day in a record store or hanging out with our friends spinning records. Uh, But our ability to discern musical style, new musical styles and and explore them, I don't think ever goes away. And so it's a a bit of a bias that we have that we can't expand our musical taste. And so in many ways, the book is kind of an invitation for people to own uh, their musical taste, to really take advantage of the opportunities technologically that are out there, to empower our musical taste, as I like to say, to make our lives richer, but also to make ourselves feel uh, healthier and and more well. Mm. Do you see much of a difference in factors that influence our individual music tastes compared to generational musical tastes? Yeah, well, the the more you get toward the individual is where you really start to find those individual those things that separate us from anybody else. So culturally, we as Americans, you know, of a certain age, we grow up, there are certain mainstream, you know, icons you know, obviously I grew up at a time when, when the Beatles, you know, were, were heralded uh, and of course happens to be, in my opinion, great music. Mm-hmm. But growing up, I mean, I talk about in the book, you know, friendships that I had that were made or broken based on musical taste. I loved the group Queen and one of my friends loved Kiss. And, mm-hmm. and so that's sort of, you know, what we call classic rock. That was, you know, the world that I grew up in and how mm-hmm. I got introduced to jazz or classical music is similarly kind of culturally based. Uh, when it comes down to why I may love Red Garland and somebody else, you know, prefers um, Thelonious Monk, uh, not that you can't like both two jazz pianists, now begins to sort of get past that cultural dimension to maybe certain cliques, certain of these intracultures that I grow, grew up in. But then now we really begin to see, okay, how does my psychology and the just the dimensions of who I am, my personality, my my curiosity, as well as my musical training, my the direction my musical training has taken me into, and things that are outside of my easy awareness. Why would I find the piano stylings of Red Garland just make me feel so good? And you know, again, I, I love Thelonious Monk, but it doesn't necessarily. 
give me my that happy space for me personally. You know, mm-hmm. again, nothing against Thelonious, um, <laughs> but that in somebody else may feel that you know quite differently and may even have a negative a negative reaction to to Red Garland, even if they're well steeped in jazz piano. Uh-huh. That I think really is um, in many ways it is a very mysterious alchemy, but one that I think that as we get to know ourselves, our personality type, our cognitive style, these are things I talk about in the book, and other aspects of our of our you know more individual identity can help explain that and then can help push us into you know discovering new musical styles or musical artists that we might not otherwise. Hmm. Are you able to tell us anything about the podcast that you're in the early stages of creating? Well, that's nice of you to ask. So uh, I wish I had <laughs> more time to, you know, to dedicate it to it so I could, you know, launch it tomorrow. Uh, but I am working on it. I'm hoping to, you know, gather, you know, at least uh, most of the first season to be able to, you know, uh, sort of deliver it within the next, you know, three months or so. Oh, okay. The podcast is going to be called Why You Like It. And not, not surprising. And every episode will be based on a individual aspect of music or musical taste. So the, the episode I'm working on now is about groove, right? So, which is obviously, uh, you know, an aspect of rhythm. But what is groove? Uh, you know, how has it been manifest in different musical styles uh, over the over the centuries even, and especially in the last, you know, 50 or, you know, or, or, or 80 years? Um, and what's going on musicologically that, that generates groove? What are the necessary ingredients? And then what's happening in the brain that would make us, why do we like music that we consider to have a groove? So, and every episode is going to have an interview, uh, like, like as you're doing. Uh, with a different musical personality uh, as part of it to help, you know, get their individual take on. So I won't give away who my <laughs> guest is uh, for Groove, but it's a big name. And so the other, other ap- aspects are kind of the, the rise of harmony. A lot of people, uh, you know, think, even musicians think that, you know, chords and chord progressions have been around forever. Well, they haven't. And it really wasn't until the 17th century that composers began to think, um, you know, vertically and not just horizontally. And we began to think about chords. Mm. Um, You know, so uh, obviously there's, you know, an unlimited number of, you know, of topics, including healing and... yeah. uh, well, that so, sounds fascinating. Definitely keep me posted when you're ready to launch the podcast and I will update the show notes to include a link to that. And I look forward to checking it out when it becomes available. I, I, I'll, I'll for awesome. sure include lots of other links in the show notes for listeners who want to learn more and connect with your work. We'll have a link to the book uh, in there and your website and some other ways of connecting. I ask all my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending, a coda, by sharing a song or a story about a moment that music enhanced your life. Do you have a song or a story you can share with us today? Yeah, so what I thought I would share is uh, it's actually, from an audio standpoint, part of a film that was made by ESPN and 538, uh, these little small uh, little episodes on, on different sort of creators of different things. And so obviously with Pandora being a, a large focus, 
but also the, the, the filmmakers uh, were aware of a project I was working on at the time, which was composing a piece of music in conjunction with Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, mm. trying to correlate, which is something I really am also very passionate about. What are those dimensions of music that can be directly correlated to healing? Not so much, you know, curing the, the actual illness, but at a minimum to be able to help deal with the impact of treatment, the anxiety, the pain, uh, even nausea and things like that. So I, I did a bit of a deep dive study looking through the literature of music therapy, and I discerned a few musicological aspects. So it was almost a bit of reverse engineering from Pandora. Mm. And I wrote a piece called The Wellness Suite. And we performed it live uh, in New York for uh, three uh, survivors of breast cancer, you know, still you know, dealing with that. Um, and I learned a little bit about their musical taste. And so that piece, Wellness Suite, is actually available also on YouTube. It's a piece for string quartet, flute, piano, bass, and drums. So a mix of some classical elements and some pop and rock elements. But this film kind of has that piece in the background as I'm also talking about some of my thoughts uh, and senses about the, the power of music and our invitation, our obligation even to really immerse ourselves, ourselves in the musical narrative to really get its, its full potential. a little bit of Dr. Nolan Gassard's The Wellness Suite. You can listen to the full version on YouTube, and you can also listen to the ESPN 538 documentary it was written for. Links are in the show notes. Thanks again to Dr. Gasser for joining us today and for enhancing lives with music. 
I am planning a future episode on the topic of music as a gift, ways to gift music to others, which is the gift that keeps on giving. These will include practical gifts, gifts of musical experiences, physical items, and non-tangible items like an original song. If you have any creative ideas to share, I would love to hear them. You can connect with me on social media, email, or my website. All links are included in today's show notes at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast slash episode 67. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next week, may your life be enhanced with music.